You're listening to a Henley Intelligence Conversation. So welcome to a new edition of Henley Intelligence Africa. I'm John Foster Pedley. I'm the director of Henley Business School here in Africa and South Africa. And I'm co-interviewing and co-conversing with Gareth Armstrong, who runs the Future CEOs program on Cliff Central. And there's a very experienced interviewer, knows us well. And we are sitting in front of Professor John Board, the Global Dean of Henley Business School, and who's over here for our graduations and has a wide experience in a multitude of things, economist, ex-London School of Economics, ex-director of the International Capital Markets Association at the University of Reading, polymath and general fascinating intellect and personality who we're going to be talking to. It's a real pleasure to be here, to be part of the conversation series of this. As John says, this isn't me being interviewed. This is really an exchange about what we think from, I guess, different perspectives politically in the UK and outside South Africa with the experience here, and perhaps some thoughts about the way politics and the world is going. I'm going to start with something you've just been talking about. I, John just gave a talk to all the staff here at Henley. And one of the things he talked about, which is probably the least interesting way to start for him, but nonetheless, he was talking about strapline of Henley Business School, which is bringing business to life. What's that about, John? I guess the interesting thing about Henley Business School, and this, I think, has lasted us for the last 75 years since we were founded, is a particular type, a particular approach to business, um, which I know John Foster Pedley here and others subscribe to, which is we've never seen businesses as a kind of as machines where the job of leaders, the job of directors is simply to turn handles and to work out how the mechanics work and do a bit of oil. We believe business is actually about people. It's all about making a difference to the people who work with you as well as just customers. So a notion which is we don't have customers, we just have groups of people we work with is really important. The way that you approach work then actually is something that's part of your life. It's not a task that you do to enable your life to take place at the weekends. You know, we spend most of our lives working. Bringing business to life is all about bringing business towards people's lives but it's also accepting that business is part of our own lives. And we all work better, have a better life, and actually make a lot more money if we enjoy what we're doing. That doesn't for an instant mean that Henley sees itself as a kind of new age business school where we sit cross-legged and admire things. It's just saying there's an approach which is hardcore to business, but businesses aren't machines. And to a question Gareth asked earlier on, you know, understanding global finance is just as important in the Henley perspective as others. It's just recognizing that life is richer and businesses are a lot richer than the simple mechanics of hedging strategies or optimal production schedules and so on. When I look, John, John, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, John and John. I think this is a problem. We just came back from Nigeria. We had four Johns and one Barry. Oh, really? We well, gave yes. him a nickname of John. Yeah, yeah. So... Just in light of, of this idea of education and certainly Henley's 
approach to education, I was doing a little bit of reading before this conversation around global education and the, the changes that are occurring. And while businesses and educational institutions are able to, to a certain extent, mold their education, to a large extent, they are also locked in by governing bodies. I know we're talking about pulling education toward people, but how much of that is actually real? How much of that can you do under the, the supervision and often under the thumb of governing organizations, like, like the organizations that will audit you to make sure that your MBA remains relevant and accredited? There are two sets of things we could worry about. We can worry about government, which are absolute rules and regulations. And we can worry about the external business school community. Ultimately, though, both of them are concerned with quality. What they want is a demonstration that as a business school, clearly from a government's point of view, you are teaching the right people the right things. You're not subverting people. You're not teaching them incorrectly and so on. But that's a really low level as far as we're concerned of assurance. What's interesting is if any of the business school associations, and I know John will talk in a minute about the Africa Business Schools accreditation program, but when we're accredited, the number one question is, what is the strategy of the business school? How do you distinguish what you do from what other business schools are about? So there's an over, overall quality question, but let's face it, there are probably, I don't know, 200 business schools in the world, which people would regard as in the top category. And the real question, therefore, isn't quality in terms of what we teach them. It's quality about what do they bring to the businesses they work for. And that's where different perspectives and different takes on this really start to matter. Each of those accrediting bodies, the AACSB in the USA, the Association of MBAs in the UK, and Equus, which does the, from the European Foundation of Management and Development, has a different sort of triangulated perspective on quality and will ask different styles of questions. So when you're triple accredited, you're going to have audits and scrutiny and questioning and self-reflection about different things. Some might be academic, some might be more about executive education, some might be about the back office, your capabilities, some be, might be about your ethos and look and feel of what you're trying to do. But that's an element of quality. I was once audited in New Zealand where I ran a postgrad diploma and an incubation session there, and the auditing bodies came with the government person and a very friendly sort of hippie type professor sitting in the corner knitting almost. And when we'd finished with the official audit, which was very detailed and around the manuals, it couldn't be signed off until this friendly professor had asked the questions, is this for real? What, you know, are you just being bureaucratic and analytical? Do you get a sense and spirit of education? Do you understand what innovation means? Because although you're applying rules for accreditation, you also have to expand and break the rules if they've become out of date, you know, they become chains. So that was an interesting balance between a clinical review of standards and a more clever intellectual approach to, well, what, what really matters here? Are we just going to sign things off or are we going to get the spirit of education? Yes. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Yeah. Let me try a different take on this. And it's one that actually in the business school community is more contentious than some, which is take luxury brand, take Louis Vuitton or something like that. It has to comply with local regulations to make sure that the dyes it uses aren't poisons, don't kill people, and so forth. It has to meet social expectations, which is, let's face it, a handbag has to have sides and a floor and probably a way of securing it. But from Louis de Vuitton, those are the least of its concerns. Right? The real thing it has is 
this is what we Louis Vuitton stand for in some way. And this is the sort of thing that people buy Louis Vuitton for. You walk down the street with a Louis Vuitton bag, you're making a statement of some sort. And that statement is quite different from the statement you make if you've got a Versace bag with all the gold trimming and the rest of it. And I think there's nothing particularly wrong with saying that's how we can think of business schools, and that's how I'd answer your question. You know, you can, business schools are luxury brands at our end of things. You buy into it. You buy into it for the ethos. You buy into it for the base level accreditation. You know bits of stuff about global finance or whatever. But ultimately, you're buying the feel and the brand that goes with it. And I think the point I made earlier on is just distinguishing the brand we've got from the brand that, for example, Chicago or one of the other much more American style business schools would have. I think that's also interesting because when you start thinking about us as a brand, a brand is not a purely intellectual contract. It's what people feel or what it, what it engenders and, and how people associate with the ideas we have. And we associate with a number of things. Here in South Africa, we've added to our brand the idea of a family-friendly MBA. We've added to our brand the idea of corporate activism and standing up to, to bullies in organizations and in government who, who try to capture you know, the finances that should be spent on the poor and developing. So we take stances and positions which are a lot more than the apparent educative content of an MBA. It's much broader because we represent something that when people come through our education, we represent something that, that we'd like to model for them. We'd like to add character as well as, as intellect to what people are doing. Now, that's difficult to do. We can't always get it right. But that certainly is our aspiration. So these, these audits and these quality standards are not just on the institution, they're on ourselves as well. And they ask us the questions whether we're living up to the standards that we embody. The former executive dean of Nelson Mandela University says this. He says, ranking, research and academic ego trump the development of socially minded managers, administrators and business leaders. And he was speaking specifically about higher education and then also postgraduate education. Uh, just a thought. I think, I think there's a real I think the comment is a really powerful one. And it's a comment that's has been made in many parts of the world at various stages. I think it is absolutely true that business schools like universities can silo themselves or can get themselves into a position where the wrong measures of quality become dominant. Where it really shows up is in the way in which a faculty are recognized as being good or bad, very often driven by personal rankings, personal publication records, and so on, which produces sort of selfish approach to things which is much more narrowly focused. And in those institutions, it's really hard to get a voice that speaks to government, that speaks to politics, that speaks to the society that people are working in. So I think the comment is really well made. I think it's a real call to arms for all business schools. And the important thing to remember in this context, since we are a global business school, is it applies everywhere. You know, if you look at the UK, one of the reasons we got stuck as we have in the Brexit conversation, which I'm sure will come up later, is because a lot of the analysis and a lot of the opinions produced are seen as so partisan they should be disregarded. So I think it's a really well-made point. Probably not surprisingly, I don't think Henley falls directly into that trap, but there are pressures on us all. You know, if you look at the probably the most widely read guide to inverted commas quality of business schools would be the Financial Times annual survey, which is focused entirely on salaries, number of publications that faculty members have had in ranked journals, and so on. 
which are things that then preclude the sort of broader things that the ex-president there was taught of the, the school was talking about, which is a chance to actually reflect properly on what's going on in the world and comment on that. So he's absolutely right, but it's a social issue. And actually, I'm sure if you looked at other industries, the same forces are at play. You know, that's what short-termism that we hear so much about is all about as well. You know, you've got to do something by tomorrow. And if you haven't managed it well by tomorrow, we're not going to give you two years to get it right. John, you and I have worked together here, yeah. here in the African operation. Mm -hmm. How do you, as a leader, as a dean, approach there's a short-term need to be successful and to keep a business running, but there is a, a longer-term, bigger view of what needs to take, the evolution that needs to take place in the education sector as a, as a whole, but then also in your school, in this environment. Well, I think the first thing, and generally, once you move from a sort of technical management level into anything that's more senior or more global, you're, you're not living with certainties, you're living with opposites, polarities, dilemmas, and tensions you somehow resolve to keep them in a constructive balance. So it's not like either or. You, you, you have to adopt this around both mindset continually. And I think the dilemmas you deal with just get more and more complicated and larger in scope. So this is, the, this is what people deal with, you know, the balance between control from, from government or parents' institutions or from governing accrediting bodies, and then the innovation needed to move with society. Because quite often accredited programs can be quite retrospective. They were good a while ago. They invented, somebody invented them, it was innovative, you created those programs, you accredited them. It's quite hard to keep those rolling forward at the pace of innovation outside. And that's where I think Henley is pretty good, actually. We are strong on accreditation, we have very strong governance. Um, John Board manages that globally and, and, and with us. And we also have an encouragement of innovation, which is bringing those rules into tension in a constructive sense. What I would be very curious about, or what John would think about, what are the, the criteria you're looking at, which would represent a really good global business school as we're growing? So I don't know what that would look like, but it'd be interesting to hear. I'm not going to answer that directly, because I think one of the problems that actually you raised in your question is the moment you write down absolutely hard and fast rules about success is this and failure is that, you lay yourself open to exactly the problem we're trying to address here, which is people manage to the targets they're set. So in a weird way, this isn't at all a, in John's phrase, a sort of hippie approach to life. Being clear about the direction in which you want to take the business is really important. Being actually able to say, in this respect, I am not going to set a hard and fast target. Essentially, what I'm saying is, we as Henley, we have to live what we say. So if we believe we bring business to life in all of the ways I mentioned earlier, we should be running ourselves in that way. We should always give ourselves scope and space to try things. So my model would be, we can start two or three new things a year. Sometimes all three will fail. Sometimes one will be successful and two will fail. And that gives you the lead into the future. This isn't the case always of just sitting there reading books on management structures or strategy and implementing them. It's just thinking through, is this sensible? Does this look like a runner? And let's try it. And that adds actually the variety people want rather than just saying, let's rise two places in the rankings. I'm prepared as dean to trade off two places in the rankings for one place plus something really interesting that we can talk about in events such in meetings like this. Step in family-friendly MBA, step mm. in corporate activism. I mean, these are uh, could be 
considered perhaps new initiatives. I'm still struggling with this idea that there are these governing organizations that lock you in to not being able to give the education that is necessary for a very fast-paced world and environment. A recent McKinsey report indicates that by 2020, there will be a shortfall of 85 million high and middle skilled workers. That's a wonderful market to have available to you. But if you're not relevant and there's no utility in, the, in what you're offering, I mean, that's a real problem. And you've got these governing organizations that hold you under the thumb. But I, I, would take a di- I would take a different view, actually. Okay. There is enormous – I'm doing this partly to interrupt John, who is about to give the real answer. Ah. Um, I think it's easy to say there will be a worldwide shortage of so many hundreds of thousands of skilled people. Universities and business schools cannot and should not simply be saying, therefore, we have to train 850,000 people. There are certain things that business schools should be working with. So typically, an MBA class, the largest one I know, is probably 300 people a year, right? We can do it in multiple places, so it might be 1,000 people a year. It could not be 18,000, let alone 180,000. What we lack socially is actually not the top end. It's actually really solid ways of training the people who will become good professionals, mid to senior level managers, not senior to director level. And, you know, in the UK, it was the abandonment of the apprentice system, where people came in with high school qualifications and beyond, and were trained up within their tar roles to do things. That's what's disappeared in the UK. And that's where the skills gap is. And socially, to address that is really, really important. And it's really difficult, because of course, it's expensive to set up the infrastructure to train that number of people. The other thing, and I'm arguing against a little bit, some of this is around the world, having a degree is seen as a social mark of success. By implication, not having a degree, in other words, I just work and I'm really good at what I do, is in some sense seen by a lot of people as failure. And it's actually breaking that social opposite of a taboo, which is actually most people do a really good job if they're allowed to get on and do it. And are not constrained by, for example, professional bodies that say you must have a degree. So for me, the social change is not bringing the top end into the mass market. It's finding proper socially desirable ways of helping people make the best of themselves. And in terms of bringing business to life, you know, that's what benefits society as well. So I apologize. That was a bit of a polemic, but. Polemic is exactly what we wanted. Yeah, exactly. I was about to get a polemic too. That's good. You need standards, and you need, and that's a good thing. So you need to get quality assurance and all that thing. Like most of these things, you can have too much of a good thing. And once you get over the top of the curve, it starts to become dysfunctional. And, and it becomes ossified and bureaucratic, unhelpful, and you get those sort of people managing that sort of thing. And that is, that is what you're talking about. That's dangerous. On the other side is that, um, you, you know, obviously it's positive. So my question to me is, what do you do as a business school to create the balance to that? So executive education, in some sense, non-accredited executive education, is where you can innovate and where you can challenge that. We participate in these fora with the, with the accrediting bodies. There are conferences around the world. There's a strong dialogue where they push back, and that's an expert dialogue. So it's not just a bunch of bureaucrats. I also believe we need to keep 
somewhat unstable organization. It's not a stable organization. It's like, I mean, I used to be a pilot. You know, if you, you fly a 747, you, you move the control column, and that thing lurches slowly. You, you fly an F-22 fighter jet, and it's completely uncontrollable without the um, computers because it, the moment you touch controls, it diverges and goes unstable, and you couldn't control it. You need an organization that's slightly less stable so, you get, so, it, so it's more agile and can move. It's very hard to do in a traditional um, university context. But the thing about business schools and good business schools, you have interesting, quirky, iconoclastic, difficult, brilliant, creative people within them. It's not just a bunch of academics. I believe that. And Henley is very good at that. I mean, we, we have good people who are intelligent, who are engaged, and who have a purpose. And so I also agree with John's point there about elitism, because it's very tempting in a the idea of an elitist business school for that top layer in South Africa, our challenge is not to create another bunch of elites, but to take a mass of people and give them management skills and capabilities, business acumen, and, and, and an understanding of what business may mean, which they haven't been socialized into through their history, and allow them to come up to a level where they can constructively engage in economies, create businesses. It might take a generation or two. But if we just keep creating elites, we're not going to create national development. So the mandate of a bit, well, mandate in my view of what a business school is, is quite different than some might see in, in other parts of the world. Um, and ours is to educate people extremely well around the capabilities that are going to help them run businesses, generate new forms of economic activity, and get employment, and, and therefore lift people. So, you know, we can play with the rules to some extent, and we can challenge them. I'm not trying to be combative. I'm just looking at the survey that McKinsey did, this research that, and report that they did, and they are saying that 50% of people between the ages of 18 and 35 today, not, not 10 years ago, not 20 years from now, today, 50% are saying that they don't believe that any studies after their undergraduate degree actually helps them in the workplace anymore. And so I'm, I, I think I'm, I'm just asking questions around a business school and its, its relevance. Sorry, say that again, 50% of people? Uh, between the ages of 18 and 35 don't believe that anything beyond their undergraduate degree is going to help them in the workplace anymore going forward. And and that's 50%. And th these aren't made-up stats. Well, maybe McKinsey made them up, but it's... But I think, well, I, th I think we can argue about statistics whether they're right or wrong. Ignore that. Anybody, I think uh, two things. One is most people get their first job at age 21 after their first degree of the people who go through universities. So in a sense, the big hurdle that professionally they're getting over is getting a job. So that sense, they don't need to learn anything else after their, that age. The big issue that you've put your finger on is, I think, two things. One is you don't need education in the same way after a first degree as you do before it. So the big point at which you absorb textbooks and you learn that apples drop off trees or you learn that global finance isn't quite the same as international finance and so forth, that's fact-based stuff. And I'd agree completely, most of the facts you need in your life, you've got by the time you're 21. Once you go beyond that, you're into much more sophisticated ways of thinking, which is how do I think about the world differently? And that's the point at which you start to learn about turbulence. That's why, as John said, we stop talking about this is how you manage your way through a de depression, where you start saying, these are the sorts of things that people have done. And therefore, the onus is much, on, much more on you as the inverted commas learner to think your way through it. So people tend to come off those programs, even MBAs, saying, you know what, I haven't learned anything from this. 
But if you're observing them, they behave differently. Do you know? So I think it's about what we mean by learning. If it's facts, I agree with you. If it's ability to manage, I disagree profoundly. As would many people with MBAs and DBAs and the rest. You know, what's really interesting, taking the opposite view of that, is just the number of MBA students around the world, not just with us, who come in at age 40, 45, 50, saying, I've now managed for years and years and years, I'm fine at it, but there's more to life than this. That's business life. And therefore, they come back searching for the new things that they want from the MBA, and they mold the MBA to what they need. And so the real task that people like John, and to an extent I face, is providing not so much learning materials for people, but ways and venues in which they can learn. So, you know, and I will give a historical thing. One of the things that Henley did for the first time way back 60 years ago was what we call syndicated learning. That wasn't syndicated in a commercial sense as in movies. It is, if you want to really get an answer to something, get 10 students all with experience together. And my role as a teacher is almost to moderate the discussion, not to teach them stuff. That's what great business schools are about. Yeah, I mean, there's organizations like EO in the world. And, and if you interact with these types of individuals, you know that what they refer to as group is their favorite time of the week or the month where they just get to be with their peers interacting and understanding what's going on so that syndicated learning is a great point and sorry and the other part that's important for this is actually having 10 other people in the room where you trust them professionally all of you sitting saying i haven't got a clue how to deal with this to you and they all come out saying no i don't know either let's just do our best is itself a real confidence builder to realize you're not alone in not knowing it Mm. And I'll put a little pitch in there as well, because John talked about syndicate learning. We were also one of the founders. Um, we were publishing work on action learning. And action learning is exactly that. And, and scientists working in the coal industry post-war were worrying about how they could manage. And Reg Revens, who was a educator and facilitator, brought them together and had these peer groups of highly expert people working saying exactly as John said, we don't know how to manage this. And those conversations guided by questions rather than seeking answers helped people create better frameworks of understanding which informed their practice, which they experimented with and then they reflected and went on from that. The one thing I would say about the difference between education and learning, we confuse education with intelligence quite often. Just because you're educated doesn't mean you're intelligence and vice versa, which matters in this context in South Africa. But while we might need what people see as university education early, what people need all the time is an accelerated capability to learn in workplace in action. Because if the world's getting more volatile and changing faster, then they have to adapt quicker. They have to deal with more complex facts and circumstances. We help them do that by the methods that we use. As an example of that, on the MBA, we were ranked uh, two, three years ago, I think number one by The Economist for our personal development work. And that seems unusual because it's a bit like a, it's a bit like a sort of magician who's holding your attention with one hand while he's picking your pocket with the other. And there's a bit about MBA sales, which is that people expect to get something in an MBA. And so you 
show them that. You give them a sort of dog whistle message about all the other development that might not resonate with consciously, but they certainly do unconsciously. And then halfway through the MBA, they find the thing that's an epiphany and transformational for them is this personal development and the expansion of their capability to deal with very much more complex issues. And that's what people come out saying is changing. But you probably couldn't have sold them that at the beginning because consciously they didn't have a framework for understanding that. Now, now you could argue that's manipulative and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think there's a great educator called Ed Shine who said, are you clean? Are you clean in your motivation? And I think that is a clean motivation to bring something worthwhile to people that people have said has been worthwhile. And I think that's part of what we do. We create innovative, new education, changing thinking for people that helps them grow, exactly as John said, into more senior, difficult positions. And it's hard to describe that. And so the rhetoric about business schools, it's all about the standards, stability, the lack of quality. The practice is kind of iconoclastic. You know, it's, 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 I hate to say this, it's probably not true, but that saying that the rules are for the guidance of, uh, for the obedience of fools and the guidance of the wise is not what we're saying here. But there's just a hint of yeah, the fact there. that, you know, you have to, you have to manage that way. And I hate to say what I'm going to say so you can ignore it. If you take the theme of this entire conversation, it's actually been about, if you like, false success, short-term measurement, being taken as success when actually long-term success for the country or for society is quite different. Yeah. We've talked about the skills gap, which is the sorts of people who need to be trained as professionals and the rest of it are not being produced by universities. My argument was for the right reasons. It occurs to me one of the, well, the last five minutes have actually been about a weird thing, which is I wish we didn't have to call the programs we offer MBAs hmm. because that produces a cachet which people want for slightly the wrong reasons. The world sees MBA as a mark of quality for management, whereas actually they're a way of improving management. They're quite different. If you've got an MBA, it doesn't make you a good manager. However, continuously exposing yourself to the sorts of things we teach in MBAs is really, really important. So the MBA without a title is something that would be really brilliant. MBA without a title. There's a brand right there. Yeah, exactly. It's a tricky one. <laughs> Which is why the MBA was a marriage breakup academy, and we felt that that was unethical to design education that broke up marriages yeah. and damaged children. So, and now we have the Making Babies Academy, which is the alternative. We have to find that somewhere in the middle. You know, There's a really, I would say, key part that we've missed or something that we haven't really talked about, which is the whole globalization question. We've talked a lot about... National trainees, I've talked about the apprenticeship, the lack of apprenticeships in the UK. You've talked about the social developments and the social turbulence in South Africa. You know, the really interesting one is the way in which people move around and the way it's, it's incumbent on us as business schools to stop talking about international education as being students from China come to us, we send our students on study visits elsewhere, and to start really thinking about these days what does it mean to manage and lead an international business and international activity? And that's much more complex than perhaps it was five or six years ago. You know, in the UK, very close to Henley, we have Huawei's European headquarters, where their policy is they bring people from China over, not to experience the UK, not to experience Europe, but to manage the UK enterprise. They're expected to understand UK business culture and European business culture, on the clear thing that actually two years, 11 months, and 30 days after this, they will be back in China running their business. 
Now, thinking about how people in those sort of capacities, you'll have the same stories in South Africa, you've got the same stories everywhere. You've got global businesses with really quite specific ways of working with people, bringing their businessmen to life and their business to people's lives that as business schools, we don't really touch yet. And I think that's, for me, that's one of the big challenges that faces big global business schools such as ourselves to make sure we really reflect the way businesses work going forward. And that's a lot more than simply saying we've got a big activity in Johannesburg or a big one in London or a big one somewhere else. It's how they work together seamlessly in the way that multinational businesses currently work themselves. Just going close to home with a sort of example, we we are building our activities in Africa and the world. You know, we could have done it from Johannesburg, we could have done it from the UK. What's emerging is something else, which is a collaborative body, which has got internationalized people. We have a Frenchman who's brought up in Africa, John who's brought up in Africa, myself at sort of detribalized Britain, and a bunch of others who are working collaboratively to try and get an approach to, to building a presence, bringing the best from everywhere without having it situated, this is a UK business school coming to Africa. It's rather, how is Africa coming to the UK business school, global business school? And that collective approach with people who have a who have an internationalized mindset allows us to create an internationalized service to those to those people we're working with rather than us coming and say what should happen. And I think that's very interesting because it's inventive, it's creative, but it has structure as well. And it's about putting the right internationalized people together to start dealing with these dilemmas and understanding what our clients are, um, are doing. And that's one of the ways we're approaching it, whereas in the past it might have been, let's set up a committee somewhere in the UK and talk about how we're going to internationalize. And let's have a bunch of international experts, academic experts, to talk about that. And it's a very different, very vibrant alternative. And I feel bad because having introduced this question, I'm now replying to it. <laughs> but again, if you think of, again about some of the other themes of this conversation, there are things that happen nationally in South Africa that would be seen as un entirely unpredictable. You know, we can talk about the state capture, we can talk about some of the other things that have happened here that no one would have predicted five, ten years ago. You can go to the UK, no one would have guessed Brexit was coming along. It's in many ways might be insane, it might be sensible, but it was whatever it was was unpredictable. If you go to Russia, goodness knows what's going on there. If you go to the States, Trump was unexpected. If you went back five years, the financial crisis was unexpected. No business school on earth worth anything would ever say, we can teach you how to prepare for these crises. Think your way through. There isn't any learning you can do where I can say, here's the textbook of managing crises. To my point about globalization, actually getting a bunch of people from South Africa to say, right, here's Brexit. Right? You're out of a social context. You don't have the social context of what's going on in Johannesburg. Just tell me about Brexit. How on earth would you manage through that? Mm. Or some people from Russia saying, work your way through the social things that are going on in South Africa and so on, strikes me as both the important question and a way of forcing people to accept the fact these things don't have answers. You know, what business schools are about is addressing problems that don't have answers. And we know they haven't got answers because we've had business schools for 100 years. And we don't know the answers. You know, we're just a bit more sophisticated each time in how we manage the uncertainties and the imponderables that are there. And realizing that no society knows what it's doing is kind of important as well. Things are limited. I enjoy working for a business school like that. It does talks about the way John talks. It has those ideas. It's something that's real. It's mature. It's sensible. I mean, I believe in strong opinions, lightly held. 
And, you know, so we're not, we don't sink into dogma. You know, John's quite right. You start believing your own propaganda if you're a successful CEO, if you don't watch out. You need to be self-skeptical while you're self-confident. It's a tricky, tricky balance. So strong opinions likely held, and I think that's what we encourage. And, um, and hey, it's fun. But I think, sorry, and I'll make a last point mm. going back, because I always believe in biting back after the event. We are suffering as a world from, if you like, the McKinseyization of thinking. You quoted some numbers there, which I'm sure were correct. But there's a big danger, which is I need an answer to something. I know we've got McKinsey, we've got PwC, we've got who can produce reports on glossy paper that look really good. And that becomes, in the old days, what they would be doing is concentrating and consolidating what other people think. Now what they tend to do, there's a process by which you tend to get the same results regurgitated time and again. So there is no space left for genuine thinking about a subject because mm. genuine thinking is difficult. The thinking is difficult and takes time. And actually absorbing the results of that thinking also requires time and concentration. So the old stuff about television being now short and much less demanding than it was is also true about research. An interesting one I was thinking about just now is since I'm obsessive about Brexit, um, given the effects it'll have, is how little genuine analysis, either from business schools or from serious thinkers about this, has actually been visible within the Brexit discussions. It's entirely driven by folk wisdom, people saying, I've had enough of experts, but what I believe is X, which is the world will be all right, is extraordinary. And it's almost like a willful turning away from people who actually have something to say. And that's nothing to do with South Africa. It's not particularly the UK. You can see it all over the place. There's a cycle of interest in thinking and a, a cycle of interest in analysis that we have to accept. And we're in a particularly poor place at the moment. I found it very interesting to listen to John. I work closely with John and getting to understand his perspective is really important for me because it's this increasingly complex world we're moving into in, in education that requires proper dialogue. And I don't mean... John talked about hippie. I don't mean sort of the parody of hippie dialogue where we're passing the walking stick, nor do I mean some sort of nasty dialectic or ghastly conflict for the sake of it, but proper critical thinking which, which argues and hears each other and hits the basis assumption, makes people sit up and think and challenge their own thought. I've enjoyed that. And I think we're getting better at that as a business school globally and here. And I think that's one of the biggest contributions. But that must be linked to action. So we say we build the people who build the businesses who build Africa. If we teach people just to think and not act, what's the point? So people need to have the courage to get their hands dirty, to make mistakes, and uh, learn fast. A quick version of that would be businesses and business schools are part of life. Decent business schools bring business to life and bring life to business. And that's what matters. It's just understanding business is a part of society. They're not separate things that generate money. We're part of it. And business schools have the role doing, you know, helping that. And those are the voices of Professor John Board, the Global Dean of Henley International, and also John Foster Petty, the Dean and Director of Henley Business School Africa. This is a Henley Intelligence Conversation. My name is Gareth Armstrong, and it's good to be with you today. For more Henley Intelligence Conversations, visit www.henleysa.ac.za.